0: Hi, welcome to New Books in History. I'm Patrick Riley, a host on the channel. Today I'll be talking to historian Simon Balto about his new book, Occupied Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power, out this year with UNC Press. Within its pages, Balto argues that the repressive urban policing in Chicago and other American cities cannot be understood without reference to local politics and struggles over city development. The national anti-crime legislation of the latter half of the 20th century was significant, but the roots of our present-day policing crisis, as Balto argues, run much deeper. The book contributes to our understanding of municipal governance, race, and social movements. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, welcome to New Books in History. I'm Patrick Riley. Today, we're talking to historian Simon Balto about his fascinating new book, Occupied Territory. Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power. Thanks for joining me, Simon. Thanks for having me. Could you begin by telling listeners how you came to study history and specifically the topic of policing?
1: Sure. The question of how I came to study history is sort of, I don't know what the best word for it is, but it's circuitous, (laughs) circuitous route to where I am. I got a bachelor's degree in history, but that was mostly because I sort of stumbled into it after trying a number of other majors. And I had no inclination when I graduated that I was going to end up going to graduate school. Um, but I was working in Chicago for a year or two. Uh, I moved to Chicago after my, uh, a, little, a couple of years after my bachelor's. And I was just working as a cook. And once I kind of was trying to figure out what I wanted to do that didn't involve just working a line uh, for the rest of my life, I decided that maybe I'd try graduate school. Um, and so I had had a particular passion in Black history when I was uh, doing my undergraduate. And so I decided that I would maybe go do that. And so um, so I ended up going to graduate school um, really in a pretty unplanned way. Um, you know, I know a lot of, like, I, when I arrived at graduate school, I went to graduate school at my alma mater, University of Wisconsin. So I, had, I have all three of my degrees from that one institution. Um, so I think I'm one of those cautionary tales about, um, it's not a cautionary tale, I guess, but like when I arrived at graduate school, I was made aware of the fact that the normal route is to apply to a bunch of different places and do a lot of research. And I had not done any of that. So I didn't necessarily feel all that prepared when I got there, but, um, but I was at least interested, which I think is a lot of the battle. So, I mean, that's how I ultimately ended up kind of where I am was not in a particularly planned route, but that when I sort of look back on it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, With the benefit of hindsight. In terms of my actual idea for studying policing, so I came into graduate school with, I came to graduate school with this really as my second idea, first idea. So I'd been living in Chicago, as I said, before I went to graduate school. And part of what I was really interested in when, or what I got to be interested in when I was living in Chicago was Fred Hampton and the Illinois Black Panthers. And so when I arrived at graduate school in Madison, I was talking to people who were advising me, and I don't even recall exactly how this conversation unfolded. But basically, they kind of redirected me away from doing that. Um, and so they were like, "Well, what else do you? What else are you interested in?" And so part of what I was interested in was that when I was living in Chicago, I walked a ton, um, and I lived up in Rogers Park, but I spent t- I spent time uh, downtown. I spent time on the south side. I spent some time on the west side. Um, and I was really interested in just how different um, the operations of, base, of basic or of various uh, municipal um, operations, how, how much it differed from place to place throughout the city. So, like, we think of a city as, like, a single ecosystem. But why did it seem that when, we, when it comes to things like the police force, why they seem to operate in fundamentally different ways as so they're policing different cities from, say, The Loop to, you know, North Lawndale to Hyde Park and so on and so forth. So, you know, that was kind of my second pitch to my advisors was to study the history of policing in Black Chicago and try to figure out why it was that policing looked so different from neighborhood to neighborhood within the city. And so that was ultimately where I landed. And this was, you know, this was back in 2008. So it was before... You know before Black Lives Matter before Ferguson, so on and so forth, so it was kind of odd to be in the middle of studying all these things in a historical perspective um over the past few years. I mean, it's been useful and helpful in the sense that I feel like I have something to contribute in terms of being able to explain some of what's happened and also to be able to amplify black voices that have for generations been saying these things about the police. It's just that you know not as many people have been listening. So yeah, so it's, it was a, you know, again, just as my route to being a historian was a little bit circuitous, I think
0: my route to my subject matter for the book was a little circuitous as well. That's great. So in the first few pages of the book, you, you mentioned that this story you tell is an intensely local one. Sure. Can you talk about why it's important that you ground your book like that relative to the books about policing and prisons that have been written already? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, you know, just thinking historiographically a bit, and it's not even just historiographically because so much of the relevant literature is coming from other disciplines, coming from, you know, criminologists and sociologists and so on. But one of the things that actually drove me to study this subject through the chronology that I did, which is 1919 to the 1970s, is that so much of the literature that we have about things like mass incarceration, policing, and prisons, it's all tethered to, like, the 1960s and onward, and in some cases, really to the 1980s and onward. And that makes sense to some degree, because when we think about the prison boom in America, you know, I mean, that's when the 1980s is when that really takes off in a profound way. Um, But so much of the literature seemed to kind of suggest that all of these things were products of federal policy choices made by people like Lyndon Johnson with the, uh, with the war on crime, um, you know, people like Nixon and Reagan with their respective war on drugs and so on. Um, and that didn't strike me as really fully making sense within the context of understanding how cities work and how, you know, how local context does matter. And so I wanted to kind of dig deeper into well, what, how did policing change, you know, over time um and in respect to different you know political and social dynamics you know there's really the best way to do that is to study a particular place you mm-hmm. know cuz i mean when you think about an institution like the police i mean we can talk about how the federal government incentivizes certain policing practices and so on but the reality is, is that like the vast majority of funding for the police comes locally the vast majority of police policy is crafted locally People experience the police not as some sort of federal agent, but as local agents and so on. So it, for me, it, just, it was primarily driven in some senses by just not fully buying the narrative that existed both in the scholarly and public domains. And so to study, to study the situation locally kind of challenges in pretty fundamental ways, I think, a lot of the narrative that we have about the police, in particular about the police becoming hyper-aggressive, and really, you know, having this incredibly outsized power that is somehow forged in the aftermath of 1965 and the passage of of the war on crime. The reality is, is that by 1965, the police in places like Chicago were really well funded, had an incredible amount of power, had support from, had robust support from both political parties. And so when you actually study locally, that narrative about The criminal justice system in a lot of ways uh, is fundamentally challenged in 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 ways that I think are really important.
0: I agree. I think you do a good job of kind of highlighting how, contrary to a lot of that literature, police are not just an empty vessel waiting to be filled with federal policy, right. and then they just go and do whatever that prescribes. Right. So I'll move to the first chapter of the book, which addresses the 1919 riots, mm-hmm. which has received a lot of press lately because of the uh, one hundredth, one hundred year anniversary. Could you briefly outline the riot for people who don't know, and then also um, describe the relationship between white ethnic gangs, aldermanic patronage, and how that basically resulted in impunity for white rioters? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, the so you know we're celebrating. We're not celebrating. We're commemorating the hundred year anniversary of Chicago's race riots as we speak. Um, so, you know, they begin on July 27th, 1919 with the murder of a black boy by a white man on the beach on the South side. Um, and then when black folks call for his arrest, they approach a white police officer and ask for this murderer to be arrested and the uh, police officer refuses. And um, black people obviously take umbrage with that. And that's sort of the context in which the riot explodes. There's obviously for years before that, there had been, you know, it had been simmering. so. Um, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm not inclined to say that something was inevitable, but it was likely that something, you know, that violence was going to explode at some point over something. And it happened to be July 27th, 1919. Um, so 38 people are killed in that riot. It lasts almost a week. Um, you know, you, that's, you know, thousands of homes are, are damaged or completely destroyed. Um, you know, hundreds of people are arrested, millions of dollars of property damage and so on. Um, so one of the key stories, I think, in terms of the riot, at least in terms of understanding and thinking about law enforcement, in terms of thinking about whiteness, um, is that you have the key aggressors in the riot are really, um, in a lot of ways, these white ethnic gangs that you describe. Um, so a lot of uh, Italian um, a lot of Italian young men especially are involved in the rider in the rioting as, um, really, really aggressor, um, collectives essentially. Um, Richard Daly, who goes on to become mayor was a member of one of these. Um, he never really wanted to public publicly comment about his involvement or non involvement in the riots, but he was certainly likely that he was a member. Um, but one of the reasons that they can do the things that they do in terms of just marauding through the South side, beating black people, killing black people um, is because they are also working as kind of political foot soldiers for powerful politicians in Chicago. And so if you connect the dots, um, the police at this point in time, a lot of police officers owe their livelihoods to politicians Um, because Chicago is so corrupt and it's so embedded in the machine system, both the Republican and Democratic parties. This is before the Democratic Party assumes supremacy in the city. But both the Republican Party and Democratic Party have their own party machinery that's heavily uh, wedded to patronage. And so the way that a lot of cops get their jobs is by knowing the right people. And so they literally owe their livelihood to those politicians. So you have um, politicians who are very close with these youth gangs You have police officers who owe their careers to these politicians. And so when these youth groups are out committing extraordinary acts of violence and extraordinary acts of illegality, the police are either explicitly told in some cases or at least know the writing on the wall that if they go after these youth groups, these white youth groups, that they risk retribution from their political overlords, for lack of a better word. And so what ends up unfolding throughout the course of the riot is that even though black people are wildly disproportionate, the victims of white violence, as opposed to white victims, white victims of black violence, that the police are arresting far, far, far more black folks than whites. It's basically an inverse relationship to reality. It's essentially what they do. And so, you know, and people at the time are actually commenting on this in ways that are really fascinating because, you know, when we think about, you know, these issues of disproportionality and inequity within the law enforcement system now, um, people during 1919, so, you know, like grand juries in the aftermath of the riot who are convened to, you know, uh, to to, uh, be juries for these cases of of people involved in the riot – Um, One of the grand juries, which is comprised entirely of white people, goes on strike because they see racism at play, because they say, how are you bringing so many black people before us when they were the primary victims of this violence? Um, So you actually have in 1919, you know, some people who are offering pretty sophisticated um, analyses and protests of systematic racism within the criminal justice system. But, you know, that doesn't translate to any meaningful reform.
0: That protest is shocking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the first chapter is obviously an important one in which you outline kind of two prongs of police repression, one of which is anti-black violence, which is kind of the more obvious one. And then another one that isn't perhaps talked as much about, but that you hinted at, which is discriminatory neglect. Mm-hmm. I think you do a really good job of sprinkling that into each of the chapters. You know, the first example being, of course, that black people are not offered the same protection from violence, right. and they can't count upon the police for the civic service that they are supposedly trying to provide. Right. We'll move on to uh, the second chapter now, and you kind of talk about the the Great Depression and the ascendancy of the Democratic Party machine. Mm-hmm. You basically argue that the police selectively enforce vice law in a way that ends up reinforcing Democratic Party power. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that a little bit? Sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, and this is actually a story that transcends the uh, Depression decade. I mean, the history of of vice policing in Chicago, it's very much a history of, in, in a lot of contexts, white police officials, knowing that you know, you're never going to get rid of, for example, prostitution. Um, you're never going to fully get rid of drug use. But so when they look, for example, at places where sex workers are working, um, what they do know is even if they can't get rid of those, they can at least get them into parts of the city that "quote unquote" matter less. And they're very explicit about the fact that when they're making that analysis, they're going to channel that vice into black districts. So this is a story that goes back to the late 1800s um, where they literally relocate what was known as the levee, which was heavily occupied by sex workers and, and other forms of quote unquote illegal behavior. Um, they explicitly relocate that to, um, to parts of the South Side that are uh, at that point black. Um, and, they're, and they say why they're doing it. They say, you know, this, you know if it's in Negro districts, you know, that's, it's less of an issue for us. Um, And so this is something that has a kind of long history. Um, And, you know, by the same token during the 1920s, one of the things that people don't really think that much about, I don't believe, is that, um, you know, during Prohibition, a lot of gangsters, uh, people like Al Capone, they're able to, I mean, you know, you could say what you want about Al Capone, but he's not dumb. Um, And he's able to understand the political landscape of Chicago and know that if he as a powerful white man wants to set up these in, you know, extraordinarily intricate bootlegging operations, that one way to make sure that he doesn't get disrupted very much is to set up operations in black districts because, you know, white people aren't complaining then. Um, and so you have this history kind of playing out over and over again. During the Depression itself, um, you know, you have obvious human misery that afflicts basically every corner of the city. Um, It's not confined to black Chicago, but it's heightened in black Chicago um, because of the ways in which, you know, racial subjugation is just has a reinforcing effect upon this kind of citywide economic crisis. So when we look at issues of um, evictions, issues of joblessness, issues of starvation and uh, food insecurity, um, these are all things that have their most acute um, effects in Black neighborhoods on the south side. Um, And so people, you know, revolt. Um, And so part of what happens in the early 30s is that um, you have the city that is enforcing um, evictions all across the city, but especially on the south side. So black people are being evicted from their homes relentlessly during the early 1930s. And um, people say enough is enough. And um, so what happens is that you get black, um, you black activists, many of whom are affiliated with, if not formal members of the Communist Party, who essentially organize um, squads of people to, once an eviction has taken place, to go put, ev- put the evictees' belongings back into their house. So essentially to just restore their home to how it had been before they were evicted. And because police officers are being dispatched to oversee these evictions and to provide security for these evictions, um, this leads to confrontations between these black activists and police. And so you get actually massive conflicts, including, I mean, you know, people being killed by the police in these moments in which you have black activists who are really resisting police power um, to perform this, you know, essentially to perform austerity politics and to be the enforcers of austerity politics. Um, And so these black activists quite literally go to battle in the streets with uh, with city police over this issue. Um, people die. People hang the mayor in effigy and um, a protest of police brutality. Um, but you still get the sense there of what the police function actually
0: is in that sense, right? Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah.
0: Another thing that I liked about that chapter was you kind of locate the, I don't want to say the origins of Class conflict within Chicago's Black belt, but you you're talking about the black middle class's role in mm-hmm. these eviction battles and how you know different classes of Black belt Chicago relate to the police. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean so and to, to actually circle back to, to your observation about the first chapter, I mean so one of the thing I mean there's basically two through lines that are kind of that exist throughout the book and then that exist in some ways as sort of distinct experiences that people have with the police and then eventually merge over time. And that is on the one hand, people feeling that they are over policed. So in other words, um, you know, when you're talking about anti-black violence, that's example of over policing. But also, you know, just the disproportionate likelihood to be stopped for no reason on the street, um, to experience harassment and racism. Those are all uh, qualities of being over policed. On the other hand, uh, you have people who talk about wanting better police protection. Um, so uh, people talk about this as you know feeling unsafe from white violence. In the case of you know, for example, 1919, some people talk about it within the uh, context of feeling scared of violence from other people within their community. But the basic premise is that you know, for people who are talking about themselves as being underserved by the police or neglected by the police, is that the police are not doing, you know, are not, as we would say it now, serving and protecting. Um, And so during the 1930s, this comes out in really remarkable ways because um, you see members, a lot of members of the black middle class who are, I don't want to say siding with City Hall when it's inflicting these austerity politics, but you do have. So, I mean, Oscar De Priest, who's one of the most one of the most famous Black politicians in the city's history, and he's really like a sort of lauded figure. But he was also a landlord, and he was one of the leading faces of um, this group of landlords who was trying to get the city to more aggressively enforce evictions. And so, you have Black communists and Black communist affiliates who are out in the streets protesting. The police, when you have black men like Oscar De Priest who are the ones not responsible for but supportive of the police being there in the first place, so you have this, you know, this class dynamic within black Chicago. I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, no community is a monolith, right? And so, so you have competing interests that come through in really profound ways during that particular historic moment.
0: Thanks to your point about complaints about lack of protection Mm -hmm. from white violence that's kind of what chapter three gets into and you're specifically talking about white violence in the face of integration one of my favorite things about the chapter is you pull law and order quote unquote out of the context that we are overwhelmingly used to seeing it which is you know the 70s and 80s and you talk about how black activists are trying to mobilize a law and order discourse to basically affect better protection against violence mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that
1: sure yeah so during the you know during the 1940s and 50s which is where so the chapters 3 and 4 are really they kind of they overlap pretty heavily in terms of their chronology but kind of explore separate issues and so part of the story of chicago in the 40s and 50s is that as Black people are moving to the city from the South by the hundreds of thousands, I mean, that you know during this time from the 1940s to the 1970s, Chicago's Black population grows by about a half a million people. And so as is the story in the 19-teens, when the first great migration of Black people happens to the city, they need places to live. And so, you know, Chicago... Is by this point in time, by the by the second half of the 1940s, when the Great Migration is really beginning, the second Great Migration is really beginning in earnest. Um, Chicago is very raci- like very very racially segregated already by this point, um, largely as a product of restrictive covenants and redlining. Um, but that system is breaking down. I mean, that in 1948, restrictive covenants get um, you know are rendered unenforceable by the Supreme Court, so that a lot of black people who are looking to move into white neighborhoods and can afford to do so, they now have a legal path to do so. Um, And this drives a lot of white folks crazy. Um, And this is partly motivated by just outright racism. It's partly motivated by their own economic interests because they know that once a neighborhood integrates, it becomes their property values diminish. Um, So you have white people acting under a variety of motives, but the end result is the same, which is that they turn toward violence when they can't find legal mechanisms to prevent black people from living near them. So from the mid-1940s to really the end of the 1950s, you have white people who are committing racial terrorism against black people. I mean, bombing their homes, bombing cars, beating them, doing all sorts of things. I mean, like literally having riots in the, that number in the thousands of people to try to prevent black people from um, moving in next door, from occupying city parks in white neighborhoods, Um, It's an incredibly violent time in Chicago's history that no one really talks about. And the reason it's so important to my book is that during this moment in time, white violence is effectively decriminalized. Um, That, you know, when all of this is happening, and again, these are forms of terrorism. I mean, that's the, that's, I mean, their purpose is, I mean, it's it's violence with political uh, goals. And um, so when all of this is happening, the police are either actively siding with white mobs, um, you know, advising them on, you know, best ways to avoid arrest. Um, in some cases, you know, um, just refusing to arrest as, as what happened in 1919. Um, and it's something that black people are really, really angry about, understandably, you know, and, and very critical about. Um, and it's, it's part of this larger pattern that's happening Right around mid-century, in which the idea of white criminality—the idea of, peop- of people who are white being criminals—begins um, to like it begins to lose some of its social intelligibility. Um, so that you know, right now, I mean, Khalil Muhammad has talked at length in his own book about you know where the idea of the black criminal comes from. Um, You know, during the middle of the 1900s, um, black arrest rates really begin to escalate in Chicago. And at the same time, white arrests begin to fall. Um, And this is partly a product of demographic change, but it's also just the fact that police are changing who they think about as criminal. And despite the fact that they're literally standing by as white people bomb black homes, throw rocks through black windows you know, overturn black cars, beat black bodies, as they're literally watching these criminal acts take place, they are actively choosing to not
0: treat that as a criminal act. From 1945 to 1965, the CPD's budget quadrupled and mm-hmm. the number of personnel doubled. Mm-hmm. And that just totally throws off the timeline of the punitive turn that we right. usually hear about right. uh, that you were discussing earlier. Right. And... um uh, the roots of that buildup you locate in i think two two co- coinciding phenomena, one of which is the Miriam daily election mm-hmm. uh, and the other is the response to the heroin epidemic
1: yeah um there's i mean there's a variety of things that um that drive this uh you know what i what i Yeah. This local punitive turn. Um, and so you, you touched on a couple of them. Um, I I mean, the most important one, I think the most important one to, to hold in hand by far is this ongoing massive influx of black people to the city. Um, because that is really in a lot of ways, what helps to shape understandings of crime and understandings of public danger and public unsafety is that people just have, um, a fear of proximity to be, to blackness. Um, So, um, so that's, that's one thing, but in terms of the more tangible things that you're pointing towards, um, you know, Richard Daly is, I think, unquestionably the most notorious, most famous, um, mayor in the city's history. Um, I think that most people would say that he's probably the most consequential mayor in the city's history. He's just, you know, you can love him or hate him. Um, I think that from my book, you probably get... A sense of where I stand on him, um, but you can't quibble with the fact that he's a man of enormous consequence to the city's history. So when he is first elected mayor, um, he is up against a guy who's pretty formidable. Um, he's up against an opponent who had been uh, he'd been a member of the Democratic Party. Um, The name's Robert Merriam. And he had been a member of the Democratic Party, but he was really, really opposed to machine politics. So although him and and Daley existed within the same party, they were really, really oppositional in terms of how they understood politics to be an ideal form of politics to work. Um, So Merriam is is more idealistic. He's a reformer, um, and he hates machine politics. So um, in the run-up to the 1955 election, when Daley is... uh, when Daly becomes mayor, um, Miriam is courted away from the Democratic Party by the Republicans, and by this point, the Republican Party, in terms of citywide uh, offices, is essentially is essentially ineffective. I mean, it's you know, I mean, you know, the joke in Chicago now—it's not even a joke—but I mean, the reality in Chicago now is that you know, Republicans just in a citywide election just don't have a chance, um, and that was it. Perhaps not to the same degree, um, true in the middle of the 50s, but it's not far off. So the Republicans court Robert Merriam to challenge Daley as a Republican candidate. And um, he agrees and he doesn't win, but he doesn't get trampled in the way that people had had expected. Um, And part of why that is, is that, um, you know, the Chicago Police Department by this point in time is... So just wildly corrupt, and everyone knows it and so Merriam really makes a big thing about this on the campaign trail, and he is constantly telling audiences, "Look, you cannot trust Daly to like oversee a functioning police department and so Daly is forced to respond, and you know when I was down looking at you know Daly's papers at u i c I mean, it's it's right there in, his, in the campaign notes where people are like, we got to do something about this issue. We've got to respond to these accusations. And so um, that 1955 campaign in a lot of ways becomes about law and order and becomes about the police department. And so part of Daly's pivot to responding to this challenge is to pledge to hire 2,000 more police officers to the department um, and to essentially just, you know, do have policing in Chicago be better. Um, And that is something that A, takes hold with voters, and B, proves to Daley and others that this is a really salient political tool and political topic. And so he keeps his word once he comes into office. He hires a ton of new police officers to the force. Um, That does not end at that 2,000 number. I mean, he just keeps going and going and going. Um, And then especially uh, in and after 1960, but even during the 50s, um, the police power is also being radically expanded. So you're getting the rise of things like stop and frisk being put into widespread use during the 50s. um, And you get that applied in, you know, completely disproportionate ways in black neighborhoods. You get what's known as neighborhood saturation, where uh, the cops just flood a neighborhood Um, that's being done exclusively in black neighborhoods during the 1950s and so on and so forth. And as you rightly point out in your question, I mean, that's, I mean, that takes money, right? I mean, so like all of these things cost money. And so the police budget is exploding during this time. Um, and it's really important to understand that this is not wed to any sort of like spike in severe crime. Um, the one thing I mean, to, and to, to take it to the final point from your question, I mean, the one thing that. The one real thing that changes in terms of criminal patterns in profound ways is the fact that there's a post-war heroin epidemic um, in Chicago. And while the rates of arrest really, there's no way that the rates of arrest reflect any sort of reality of, of who was using uh, heroin. I mean that, you know, I forget the exact statistic at this point, but it's, you know, it's over 90% of arrests are for, uh, for uh, drug use during the uh, late 40s and early 50s are, are of black people at a time when the city is still overwhelmingly white. Um, But so you have this heroin epidemic that um, once again is kind of this moment in time where um, the question of how how a crisis is going to be addressed by the city and how the police are going to be enrolled in addressing that crisis, when that really becomes a – An important question. And the answer is that even though at this, at that juncture, even though police officials themselves are saying that this is really more of a public health crisis than anything, um, the reality is, is that the city does not invest in addressing it as a public health crisis. And even though you have police officials and other people in law enforcement who are saying, look, if, you know, the best way to do this is to treat this as a medical crisis public health crisis first. But if you can't do that, we're going to have to arrest these people because, you know, if you have addicts, you know, a lot of them are going to, you know, commit crimes to, to, uh, to meet their addiction needs and, um, you know, et cetera. So you have this public health crisis when it hits black neighborhoods in the late forties and fifties, that is not treated as a public health crisis, but that is instead treated as, um, the first war on drugs in Chicago, and that's actually explicitly what it's called. It's called, you know, the Tribune calls it a war on drugs in 1950 or 1951. Um, and even though everybody's acknowledging that this is primarily a matter of health, it's treated as a matter of crime.
0: Two things are really striking about uh, what you just said. One of which is the uh, the awareness of the police of some police that of their power to solve social problems Mm -hmm. which is something that uh in my research of the 1980s and 1990s also comes up Mm -hmm. um and to the kind of another through line of your book or at least through line starting perhaps with the fourth chapter is this use of police reform as a pretense for police growth and police expansion Mm -hmm. it seems like um Whenever there's a public and public conversation among political officials and the and the press um, about police corruption or police uh misconduct or malpractice or violence the 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 predominant solution that gets offered is more police more police resources mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah it's um And more police resources, I think, is, is, is the more, is the more important factor there because the, well, it's not the more important factor in certain contexts, the more important factor. The reason I say that is that um, for a lot of people, when they see things like police corruption, um, they, they assume that that's something that more resources will help fix. Um, And to a certain degree, there's a logic there. I mean, that I mean, the reality is, is that like being a police officer in the city of Chicago for a long time was, uh, I mean, in terms of how we would define crappy jobs in terms of like good pay, um, was not a good job. Um, and so a lot of police officers who were, um, who were exposed for being corrupt, usually what that meant was that they were just trying to find ways to get more money. Um, so they would work for the mob or they would do X, Y, and Z. Um, And so there is a certain logic there that, well, if you pay police officers better, then they'll have less incentive to do these illicit things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, But when we think about the most important problem of policing um, as not one of corruption, but as issues of racism, issues of, you know, I mean, all of the various things that I would say collectively – mean, collectively make up what I would call the policing crisis. I mean, whatever a lot of people would call the policing crisis that we face right now. um, There's just a lot of things that more resources are not necessarily going to fix because they're not ultimately matters of resources. They're matters of ideology and matters
0: of power. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it also puzzles me how the... The problems entailed in the policing crisis that you mm. mentioned are—they ne- never fall under the rubric of corruption. No one mm. ever, pl- right. you know, uh, when when people speak of police corruption, it's kind of always narrowly defined as a single or small group of officers pursuing like additional economic gain through mm. like informal economy mm. or crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's never expanded to include beating up black people. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just incredible to me.
1: Yeah. There's actually a, there was a city commission done at the end of the 1920s, you know, I mean, to, to, I mean, because everybody at this point knew that, that the police were really corrupt. Um, but so they, they authored this, uh, this really, I mean, it's a book, it's not just a report. It's a, it's a 300 page book, um, literally called Chicago police problems. Um, and nowhere does do issues of racism, issues of violence or anything like that come up. It's all just these issues of like corruption, misorganization and so on. So, I mean, yeah, these, these sort of reformist visions, um, of what policing's problems are that are in need of address for a very long time, issues of racism, police violence, uh, you know, harassment and so on didn't even
0: register on people's radars. I think the epitome of that reformist impulse, too, is the subject of the next chapter, which is about Orlando Wilson. And you almost take like a biographical or like kind of a career biography approach of Wilson in this chapter, Mm -hmm. which I rather liked because I think that he's a complicated person that not a lot of people have written about. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a couple books Mm -hmm. that either deal directly or indirectly with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he kind of exemplifies this image of a dispassionate and responsible police reformer who's going to quote-unquote professionalize the police along with structures of police accountability and kind of boosting technological resources also kind of tags along with it a mandate that police can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah I mean he's so Orlando Wilson is a really he's a very interesting Figure, he's by far the most important um, head of the police that Chicago's ever had. Um, he was absolutely one of the probably, I'd say during the peak of his career, he was probably one of the three most important uh, criminologists in the entire country. Um, you know, he was at, he was his he was rumored to perhaps be a successor to J. Edgar Hoover to head the FBI if Hoover ever stepped down or died. Um, we never know how that would have played out, but, um, and to his credit, he didn't like Hoover. Um, but, you know, so he's a person of national importance. I mean, so when, when he was, when he was tapped to become the head of the Chicago police in 1960, he was actually working as the Dean of the school of criminology at California, Berkeley. Um, and he had to really be courted by the city of Chicago to come leave his academic post to take over this, Department. I mean, he knew what he was getting into. I mean, he, he very much said that it was going to take – it might take a generation to, to reform the police department here in ways that, that it needed to. Um, so when he is brought in, it's in the wake of this crippling scandal for the police department that hits the city newspapers right at the end of 1959 where members of the police department are implicated in um, being deeply involved in this robbery that's on up on the north side, um called the Summerdale Scandal, and so it's such a powerful and relentless news story that it finally really makes daily have to do something beyond just kind of like tinkering around the edges with the police department. like there becomes a big enough demand to actually bring in somebody who is not just gonna be his political lackey and is going to actually try to do something functional with the police department. So they do this national search and they actually ask Wilson to come in as just a member of the hiring committee uh, to serve as sort of an outside advisor. And they don't find anybody that they like and they eventually offer the job to Wilson himself. Um, He comes in and he does an extraordinary amount of things. And he, without question, is really important in terms of professionalizing the police In terms of trying to, uh, in terms of streamlining police operations, in terms of modernizing the police, he also very much is a believer in police accountability, where he um, really is strongly in favor of trying to, you know, weed out the quote-unquote, you know, bad apples. Um, But by the same token, he is also very, very much a law and order guy. And when I say law and order guy, what I mean by that is that although... By all accounts, I mean, there's nothing in his um, – there's nothing about him that suggests that he is anything other than pretty liberal when it comes to racial issues in an abstract way. Um, he also has absolutely no time whatsoever for structural arguments about, what, about why crime happens. So when he looks at um, arrest rates in Chicago, when he looks at um, crime rates in Chicago – which are obviously tethered to police behavior in a lot of ways, um, he sees that as a sign that black people are a problem. Um, And so although, again, he is at least outrightly supportive, for example, of the civil rights movement, um, he also, as part of this general process of modernizing the police, professionalizing the police, he also implements and formalizes really repressive police uh, functions, pardon me, Um, So, for example, um, although his predecessor had helped to um, kind of put stop and frisk on the map in really racially discriminatory ways, um, it was a really controversial practice that no one was quite sure if it was legal or not. Um, And so Orlando Wilson takes it upon himself to really become the most important lobbyist to the state legislature for uh, for legalize, for deeming, uh, for, for legalizing stop and frisk. Um, so he, uh, he does things like that. He also, um, implements quota systems for officers who work in black districts where they're explicitly measured in terms of their, um, you know, in terms of how, uh, quote unquote, how well they're doing their job. Um, that's tied directly to the number of people they're stopping and questioning. Um, and he also, in, a, in what I think is, well, so, so I'll say two more things about him. So the first is that um, he is very um, budget conscious in the sense that he, he's not budget conscious. He's, I guess, the opposite of budget conscious in the sense that whatever amount of money he can get for the police department he wants. So he's very conscious of how important a robust police budget is. So he's, in a lot of ways, responsible for that enormous, enormous growth of the police budget um, that you referred to earlier. Um, And it's really important to understand that when he is making the arguments for that expansion of the police budget, he's using really racist ideas to structure the argument behind it. Um, So there's this memorandum that I found in his files, which are out in Berkeley, um, that was from his time with the CPD, where... um, they basically—it's an internal document from the police department where they're um, making an assessment of what crime rates are going to look like over the rest of the 1960s. Um, and so this this memo—it was undated, but it's from 63 or 64. Um, and they they what they do is they look at migration trends of black people into the city, and they say, okay, well we can expect that this many more black people are going to arrive in the city over the rest of the 1960s. So um, if, say, 20 you know, if the black population is going to expand by 20%, we can assume that the crime rate is going to expand by 20%. If the crime rate is going to expand by 20%, we need to ask for a 20% um, increase of of the budget. Um, And so you you get these logics about black people as being innately predisposed towards crime embedded in the growth of the police department, right? I mean, that that's not actually, I mean, there's no way of knowing, you know, in any sort of meaningful way, but the basic gist of what they're doing, the intellectual move they're making is to say more black people equals more crime, which necessitates more police. Um, And the city buys it hook, line and sinker and they, and they have extraordinary success getting a ton more resources um, for that, um, to wage this, you know, increasingly hyper-aggressive system of what, uh, what Wilson calls aggressive preventive patrol, which is essentially broken windows
0: policing by a different name. And you, you also mentioned that the, um, another kind of statistical maneuver that he uses to argue for growth in the police budget is uh, that attempted crimes be recorded. Mm -hmm. I I had not heard of that. And that's just Mm -hmm. another example of police officials using the malleability of statistics Mm -hmm. to argue that police aren't being sufficiently uh, supported. Right. He also went on record and said two things that pro-police right-wingers even talk about in the same general terms today, which is one, that... Civil rights activism is a drain on police resources Mm -hmm. and thus Mm -hmm. threatens a peaceful society. Mm -hmm. And two, that limits on police power also put society in jeopardy.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is you know the first the first part of that especially I think is really important Um, just to understand just as a a sort of citizen of this society. um, You know, I, I mean. And Wilson is not the first person to, to make this argument that says that black demonstrations for for civil rights um, are untenable because um, police have to go respond to these, you know, to respond. And then that and then if police are responding to these civil rights initiatives, then they're not responding to other things elsewhere in the city. Therefore, those people in other parts of the city are being deprived of their rights to public safety. Um, so you have this as an argument, you know. I mean, even in the 1940s and 50s, during this um, this period that I talked about, in which white violence is being decriminalized, um, despite white violence being decriminalized, the city is still dispatching a ton of police officers there. They're just not doing much once once they're actually on the ground. But you have uh, the head of the police department at that time was a man named Timothy O'Connor, who was Wilson's predecessor, and he basically said that neighborhood integration should be put on hold because the police department um, was being robbed of resources because it was trying to protect black people, because I had to protect black people from these white racists who didn't want them living in their neighborhood, which when you're talking about, um, you know, who has rights, it's a pretty telling statement, right? About the fact that black people who are just trying to live their life in a neighborhood, um, that because the police are doing their job, like that's not considered a legitimate, uh, priority for the police to keep black people safe. Um, so Wilson does the same thing, um, and the most striking example of that is in, in 1966. Um, Martin Luther King spends a lot of the year 1966 in Chicago, uh, especially during the summer, um, as part of an open housing campaign here. And um, Wilson tries. Wilson has a fairly um, cordial relationship to to King at first, but that changes over time because. Although, again, there's nothing that says that – there's nothing that suggests that Wilson is not sympathetic to the idea of civil rights. He's very, very hostile to the idea that, for example, blocking traffic or marching without a permit, he's hostile to the idea that these things are legitimate. Um, and so, as the summer of nineteen sixty six escalates, <clears throat> and as it becomes more and more tense in Chicago with uh, all of these various marches going on, at what point uh, Martin Luther King suggests that they march on the Dan Ryan and shut it down um, and once talk of things like that escalates, um, Wilson goes to Daly and say, "Look, if these things continue, we are going to have to redirect." unsustainable levels of police officers to these scenes. It's going to put the rest of the city in jeopardy. And Daly uses that argument from Wilson to issue an injunction against the civil rights movement that limits, that essentially guts their ability to do any sort of public protests. And that effectively crushes um, the momentum that had uh, that had built over the course of the summer at that point in time. I mean, that like King essentially leaves Chicago having accomplished really none of what he was hoping to do here. And in a lot of ways, the reason that he left in that fashion was because of the intellectual moves Orlando Wilson made to suggest that the things that he was doing were were illegitimate.
0: The next chapter, you kind of open with the infamous 68 police riot at Mm -hmm. the Democratic National Convention, but you kind of use it as a way to introduce, I think, what is a more kind of insidious and more interesting point, which is... This transformation of the police from a the political tool of the Democratic Party to a more extreme political organization in its own right Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that transformation
1: sure Um, yeah and I'll try to be brief Um, so a couple of things are going on there I mean so the the way that I use the 68 uh, DNC police riot is kind of as a foil Um, You know, I mean, because the 1968 DNC riot, police riot, pardon me, it really has stood out in the kind of iconography of the 1960s as this unbelievable moment of state violence that really like reflects the larger 60s. The reality is, is that the 68 DNC police riot is important in the political history of the United States. It actually tells us very little about what state violence is really like, um, because, you know, I mean, I mean, no one's killed at the 68 uh, DNC police riot. And what police officers did there, although it was terrible and, you know, I mean, the the violence that they meted out upon, you know, primarily student age protesters was horrific. um, It was pretty tame compared to the realities of living under police violence and repression elsewhere in the city for black people. Um and part of the reason why I, I, I talk about it in that way is that, you know, the sixty-eight DNC riot here, police riot, um is given such pride of place that people don't even think about the fact that, you know, just a few months before, um, a bunch of black people were killed, a lot of them by police in an uprising in the aftermath of Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, you know, in which the police are, you know, are rolling around the West Side with, you know, machine guns and using them. You know, so I mean during the DNC um, you know, there was I mean the artillery that was being deployed in the streets was astounding, but you know, as a general rule, police were not, you know, just casually firing machine guns into, you know, into businesses and so on. Um and so that's I, I used the the DNC ride in that way to sort of suggest let's pull back and think about, like let's de-emphasize that as really something that tells us a whole lot about policing in the 1960s um, in terms of how violence is operative within within the police apparatus. But to your point about um, how it signals this larger kind of shift in, in police politics, um, by which I mean the politics of police themselves, um, throughout the course of the 1960s, the police are a couple of things are happening. Police in general are becoming more and more aggrieved. Um, partly in response to, you know, all of these clashes with civil rights activists where they look really bad, partly in, uh, partly because of things like their battles with student, uh, anti-war protesters in which police often look very bad. Um, part of it is, you know, the language and action of black power activists. Um, So over the course of the 1960s, a lot of police are getting increasingly angry and increasingly defensive. Um, And this is leading them towards really, really, really reactionary politics. Um, And this is important both in and of itself because it's important to think about the repercussions of these public servants having really reactionary politics – but it's also important because it's during this time that police organizations that will later just become unions are gaining not just increasing power, but particular types of increasing power, um, by which I mean that, you know, whereas prior to the 1960s, most police organizations in Chicago, you know, things like the Patrolman's Union and so on, uh, Patrolman's, it's not called the Union, Association, I what, association yeah, pardon me, thank you. Um, you know, part of, mostly what they're doing prior to the 1960s is just doing things like you know, trying to lobby for better pay. Um, But at the beginning of the 1960s, really what happened, what they do is they pivot hard towards fighting against any infringement upon their supposed professional rights. So actually the Chicago Patrolmen's Association becomes the um, leading opponent of Orlando Wilson, actually. So the Chicago Patrolmen's Association, which represents 9,000 Chicago police officers by the early 1960s is pretty much an open revolt against Wilson because Wilson wants to, you know, do things like have an internal investigations division and to try to root out cops who are corrupt. Um, And the actions of these police organizations, you know, things like the Fraternal Order of Police, um, they just become more and more and more Aggressive and reactionary, and also powerful over the course of the '60s, um, you know. And by the 1968 presidential election, the National Fraternal Order of Police invites George Wallace to come speak at their national convention. And as he's going off on these insane conspiracy theories about communists and about black people and about how you know, if the police were just allowed to run the country for a while, all its problems would be fixed. You know, as he's saying all these things, I mean, he's just getting, you know, standing ovation after standing ovation. Um and you also get police that are, you know, just straight up aligning with right-wing extremist groups, you know. I mean, including the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, the um, you know, one of the like major news stories from the end of 1967 was the fact that the Grand Dragon of the Illinois Klan was also a Chicago police officer who was recruiting amongst his white uh colleagues for at least a year, uh, by the time that he was exposed. And, um, you know, this sort of thing is just increasingly suggestive of a very, very dangerous, I think a very dangerous, um, turn in how police officers see themselves. Um, you know, that they are increasingly seeing themselves as kind of partisans in this war for the soul of society, um, and they see their partners in this war as being, among, other, among others, uh, some of the most reactionary elements of American society, whether people like George Wallace or organizations like the Klan, um, which I think is a, it's a really, really cautionary story.
0: Absolutely. I think, the, I think the police, and there are examples from the time that you're speaking about and our present moment in which the police are kind of the most obvious overlap between mainstream conservatism and the far right. Mm. So that's very interesting. We'll wrap up shortly, but the last chapter, you get to talk about your original interest mm. uh, that you brought to grad school, which is the Black Panther chairman, Fred Hampton, and his uh, assassination by... Chicago Police Department, but then discuss the different ways that black activists have with more or less degrees of state involvement tried to reckon with violence in their own communities, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the most vexing questions in the carceral state literature Mm -hmm. and something that people like Michael Jabin-Portner and Mm -hmm. James Forman Jr. have tried Mm -hmm. to reckon with and something that I think you discuss pretty deftly here. So could you, could you talk about some of those competing attempts? So in, yeah, so
1: in 1969, um, you know, Fred Hampton, who's 21 years old, is assassinated in his bed by the Chicago police department, uh, in coordination with the FBI and in coordination with the, um, Cook County state's attorney. When that happens, it's, it's in some ways for for a lot of black people in Chicago, and I won't say, I, I would say for most of black Chicago, I mean, the, the Panthers were, before his assassination, were obviously a controversial presence even for a lot of black Chicagoans, that plenty of black Chicagoans thought that the Panthers were going too far with their rhetoric and so on, even though they very much enjoyed and appreciated the survival programs that the Panthers were putting in place, things like free breakfast for children and so on. But suffice to say that the Panthers did not not have... A majority share of support from the black community prior to the entirety of the black community um, before his assassination. But his assassination for a lot of people is to some degree a version of what Adam Green, who teaches at the University of Chicago, um, that he, what he has called a moment of simultaneity, which is kind of this moment in time in which a particular event has a transformative impact on the kind of the consciousness and self-awareness of a group of people. Um, and so the context in which, in which uh, Adam uses it is, is within the context of, uh, he uses it a couple of ways, but the, most, the one that comes most to mind is, is in The lynching of Emmett Till, where it sort of just catalyzes, it is sort of a cohering moment in, in particularly for, for black Chicago, but obviously for black Americans elsewhere as well. But so what happens for, in the aftermath of, of Hampton's assassination is that so many different individuals and organizations in Black Chicago mobilize in his name. And they mobilize in all sorts of different ways, whether that be, you know, to, you know, to provide more robust relief for victims of poverty. A lot of organizations, I mean, the most pronounced way is they mobilize in his memory to challenge police authority. And, to, you know, this becomes a kind of shocking Wake up call for a lot of people about the extent to which the police will go to neutralize opponents. But part of what is coming out of that milieu in the early 1970s is that you not only have organizations that are mobilizing in Fred Hampton's name to challenge and curtail um, this sort of out of control police power, but you also have other members of the community and indeed people who also are wanting to challenge police power who are arguing that the police are still not serving black communities well enough, so that the police are willing to go assassinate somebody like Fred Hampton, who's doing a lot of good for the community. But by the same token, they're not doing enough to protect black kids, you know, growing up in this city. Um, And, you know, it's important to understand that this is also by the end of the 1960s and the early 1970s, there is a, a crisis of violent crime. Um, facing a Black youth in this city. That was not true before the mid-1960s, but by the beginning of the 1970s, it is true. And so for a lot of community organizations, they're either saying one or both of the following. The police are out of control and just completely abusing us, repressing us, harassing us. And on the other hand, police are nowhere to be found when we need them. And they are completely abrogating their responsibilities to us as taxpayers to perform their supposed job of ensuring public safety. So what's important and interesting about the people who who occupy that latter group, the people who are saying, look, the police are, are just not serving us as taxpayers and they should be doing more, is that it's very, very uncommon for them to hold that opinion while also saying that the police are doing a good job on the other hand, right? I mean, so that there are very few people who are saying, okay, well, the police should be doing more, but we also appreciate the way that they treat us in the everyday context of our own lives. So, and what this means is that, well, and the other thing is that they also in general are saying, look, we need more policing in our neighborhoods. We need better policing in our neighborhoods, but we also need better resources for schools, job training, you know, mental health clinics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I think Foreman in his book calls an all of the above approach where, you know, they basically say that police are not, police are not the be all end all solution to these problems, but police can perhaps be either part of the solution, or can at least be a stopgap solution pending these other more important social investments that could help eliminate these problems in the first place. Um, So you have kind of this complex cauldron of black politics surrounding the police in the early 1970s, a lot of which is driven out of severe outrage and grief over the assassination of Fred Hampton, but also just the, the... numerous, dozens and dozens and dozens of black deaths at the hands of the police at the end of the 60s and early 70s Um, and anger over things like stop and frisk. So you have um, a lot of people who are talking about those sorts of things and at the same time you have a lot of people who are just saying the police are not doing enough to keep us safe. But the one common thread that kind of binds them all together even though they might seem competing at first blush is the fact that what they all share is an acknowledgement that the police just don't work
0: well for them. I think a lot of the questions that both of those parties asked were left unresolved in in, in sure. the seventies. You kind of connect those questions to the policing crisis that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that we are currently embroiled in. Right. Um,
1: I mean, I, th- I think that the most compelling, the most compelling thing I think that comes out of that conversation that's happening in the early nineteen seventies is the campaign for community control of the police, which originates with the what's left of the Black Panther Party, but it also weaves together this. Um, this patchwork fabric of of community organizations from all sorts of racial and ethnic and religious backgrounds from all across the city of Chicago um, in the early 1970s to basically try to establish a movement to get community control of the police, which essentially means that rather than operating, rather than there being a Chicago police department, there would really essentially be like um, an Englewood police department. And the citizens of Englewood would decide what policing should look like in that neighborhood. And the same thing for you know, uptown and so on so 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 basically that um, specific neighborhoods are able to determine what their needs over public safety are rather than, say, somebody who occupies City Hall and who lives in Hyde Park or who lives in, you know, the Gold Coast or something that has no real connection to, say, North Lawndale or to Englewood, that that person at City Hall, that City Hall bureaucrat who doesn't have any idea about the lived experiences of, of people who live in those neighborhoods, that they actually get to determine what policing looks like, and that would include hiring power firing power, and so on and so the Panthers lead this charge to try to get this community control initiative on the ballot in uh, in the early 70s and it ultimately fails, but it is it's one way to conceive of how the conversations that you and I are talking about right now how they could per- potentially be resolved right I mean that you know that perhaps if you take the policing mission even more localized than this gigantic um, space that you know is defined by city limits and instead think about it more as a neighborhood enterprise that is able to be more nimble and responsive perhaps and more and and importantly more accountable that perhaps that that is the way to some way to to go about resolving these questions um because we really haven't we don't have a historical example of this in action really who knows um and i think that probably a lot of people who do fall into that abolitionist wing of of, of politics would say that that's probably, you know, you're probably still going to see those same problems just replicated just at a smaller scale. Mm. Um, So who knows? But I mean, I do think that that is, that that's one, one, um, I mean, that's really the moment that I end the book on and before the epilogue is talking about that movement as perhaps one way to think about how this could play out differently.
0: I think offering answers to these questions would be perhaps a little bit harder than sure. problems you tackle in the book. Right. But, uh in any case, uh, I, I want to thank you for writing such an in- interesting and important book. And thank you. I think one that points us in the right direction as far as questions we need to ask ourselves about the study of cities and the study of municipal politics mm-hmm. and also the future of, of organizing in Chicago and elsewhere. Sure. Before I let you go, I'd like to uh, hear about your next project or what you're working on now.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm actually... I'm juggling two projects. The, so the first of which, um, and you alluded to this, I, you know, I went into graduate school wanting to do a, a biography of Fred Hampton. And I ultimately wrote this book. And so I wrote the dissertation version of what became this book um, instead of that. And so uh, one of the things that I'm doing right now is is turning back towards doing that true biography. There's been some fantastic scholarship and fantastic stuff written about Hampton. Uh, Jacoby Williams wrote a, a book about the Illinois Panthers. The lawyer for Fred Hampton's family, Jeff Haas wrote a, a kind of joint, kind of a memoir about the trial of, of, uh, of the people who killed him. And, and, you know, that took place here here in Chicago, obviously. But I still think that this is a life that is deserving of just its own kind of focused uh, look and analysis. And so, so that's, that's the big book project I'm doing right now. And I've been making, I would say, quite a bit of headway with it this summer, um, which has been nice. Uh, And then the other the other project is one that I'm still that I'm really excited about, but I'm trying to figure out if it's just an article, or if it's going to be a book. But it's about the history of white people donning blackface to commit crimes, which I have found a pretty remarkable historic trail about, you know, primarily during the Jim Crow era. And it's just, it says a lot of fascinating things about, you know, about criminalization, about racial violence, um, because a lot of people are talking about how this puts black people at risk of lynching when, you know, if if, if a crime is committed and black people are suspected when it was actually a white person who did it. I think that it collides, it it sort of represents a collision of the literature on blackface and racial perception with, you know, this uh, literature on the carceral state, you know, what Khalil has called the condemnation of blackness and so on so I mean they're, they're two wildly different projects that I'm, and I'm, I'm passionate about both of them one is definitely going to be a book the other I'm still
0: figuring out what form it'll take well I look forward to reading both of those cool so thank you thanks for sitting down yeah
1: thank you